people who are out and keep them safe on the road um, through the difficult weather and things like that. Pray for safe travels for them and their family. But uh, you're welcome to go ahead and open up your word um, to the book of Luke. All right, we're going to be in the gospel of Luke this morning, and we're going to be in chapter 18. So go ahead and get that started. Um, We'll be in 18 verses 9 through 14. Okay, so Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. So before we get started, I'd just like to um, go to the Lord in, in prayer again, and I ask that you would join me in understanding. Father, we just, um, we are poor and needy. We need your grace. Um, and not only do we need your grace, we need your understanding. Uh, because your word teaches us that without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we are dead and we cannot believe. I pray that you would help us to believe this morning. I pray that you would help us to not only believe, but to do. Um, not in a sense of um, legalism, but in a sense of response to your word, because your word tells us that um, people will know our faith by the works that we do and the fruit that the Holy Spirit bears in our, li- our lives. So I am just ask that you would move and uh, that we would not leave here the same. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, is everybody getting there in the loop? Yes? I'm going to take that as a yes. Silence normally means yes. All right, so today we're going to be walking through a parable uh, that Jesus shared with his disciples. Um, This is a parable that I've often come back to in my personal devotion because it's so encouraging to me. And as we know, Jesus told, especially in the book of Luke, a multitude of parables. Right? And we know that the purpose of parables were to help us understand various things. Right? So there were parables that were told about the kingdom of God, right? the kingdom of heaven. There were parables told about the heart of men. There were parables told about the coming of Christ and his judgment and how he's going to separate those who are his and those who are not his and things of that nature. Um, and ultimately, the parables are for our understanding and helps us kind of understand the state of our hearts. Now, this particular parable is important and it's great and it's powerful because we see two different things here. We see the power of the mercy of God. We see the greatness of the mercy of God. And we also see the danger in trusting in ourselves for righteousness. So simultaneously, we see these two things, the power of the mercy of God, and we also see the danger of trusting in ourselves to make right relationship with God as well. And so like I said, it's one of my favorites. Um, So I'm confident that we're going to be encouraged by this this morning. And I also think that it brings to surface the result of many common human behaviors, right? And there's one in particular that it does bring to light. Now, I am an unofficial scholar So that means I don't know a lot, but I'm interested in human behavior, right? The reason why people do things, I want to know why, right? I just like to sit down and listen to people, hear about where they came from, but also understand why is it that they do the things that they do. And doing that, we see that God has instilled in us many different behaviors, right? Because we are made in the image of God. But there is one particular behavior that we're going to see this morning, And that behavior is the behavior of comparison, right? That is us comparing ourselves to other people. And it happens all of the time. And also this behavior, along with many others, is not necessarily bad, but it can be, 
right? So when you compare yourself to other people, it's noble in a sense that I have a brother in Christ that I look up to or somebody, an example for that nature, and I see them living their life and I compare my life, my walk with God to them, wanting it to be somewhat on the same level, and I'm encouraged by that. That's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about another type of comparison. So it doesn't necessarily have to be bad, but it can be. And with the fallen state of man, we know that we take good things and we make them bad things and we need God's help to reverse that. Um, So this behavior of comparison manifests itself in two different ways. Now, you could probably come up to me after service and say there's more than that and I would agree with you, but it manifests itself in two primary ways. All right, y'all ready? The first one is we compare our worst to other people's best. We compare our worst to other people's best. And that's something that I have wrestled with for quite some time. So what I mean by that is you could take certain categories of your life. So if you're a Christian, your spiritual life, and you could look at somebody else's gifts or the things that God has given them in a spiritual sense, and you could say, my life does not look like that. There may be a person in your life that you just think is like on the next level of holiness, like God is just ultimately working in their life and it's noticeable. And you may look at their life and go, I'm not there yet. And you kind of start to despair over that, right? Or it may be, you know, you're struggling with what spiritual gifts are yours and you look at a person that could stand up in front of a bunch of people and eloquently proclaim the word of God and go, well, I can't do that, right? And so maybe you start to think that if your spiritual gift is not that, then maybe something is wrong with you. So you're comparing your worst to other people's best. You could do it with material things as well, right? We start to look at other people and the things that they have and the things that we don't have and we compare ourselves in that way. And a lot of that has to do with the rise of social media. And the reason for that is because on Facebook, 95% of the things that we post are the positive highlights of our life, right? So marriages, the births of children, vacations, job promotions, And every once in a while, you've got a friend on Facebook that is not afraid to tell you all the things that are going wrong in their life, right? We've got some of those. But for the most part, everybody posts the highlights, and you're not not there to see the struggle or the things that they've had to go through, right? We're only seeing the highlights, and we start to believe, like, maybe something's wrong with my life. So you're always saying, man, I'm not that at all. And you're comparing your worst to their best. Now, that's not what we're talking about this morning, even though I just went into in-depth on that description. We're talking about another type of comparison, and I wouldn't even say that it's worse than the other one. It all depends on what you do with it. This comparison manifests itself in a very dangerous way, and is when we compare our best to other people's worst. Right, so we're looking at the flip side now. Not in my, I'm not looking at my shortcomings and looking at somebody else's um, success and going, oh man, I'm looking at my success and I'm looking at other people's shortcomings and that starts to create something in me of pride and contempt and things of that nature. And that's what we're going to see in the text this morning. We're going to see the manifestation of the second, the comparing our best to other people's worst. So with that being said, we're going to go ahead and read the text for today. Again, Luke 18, starting with verse 9. And it says this. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And he said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, said thus, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast 
twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, I am a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And uh, that is God's word to us this morning. So one thing that I find very interesting when Jesus is talking in general, and it doesn't have to be limited to just Jesus. It could be the consistency of the Holy Spirit, God speaking through other men throughout Scripture, the entirety of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is how they're very careful to use specific words that allow you to go further into detail, into the point, right? So in other words, when Jesus is saying specific things, he's not saying them by accident. He's saying certain things on purpose so we can understand in depth the meaning of what he's trying to say. So what do I mean by that? Well, the intro into the parable says the reason why he's telling this parable, he said that there were some in his midst that believed that they were righteous before God and they trusted in their own righteousness. And not only that, they held others in contempt because they weren't as righteous as these other men. So that's why Jesus tells the parable, but he goes a little further. He says, two men walk into the temple to do what? To pray, right? But the interesting thing is that we notice Jesus doesn't leave it there. He doesn't say two men walk into the temple to pray, and then he goes on to say what they, what they say. He offers us a little more information about these two gentlemen that will help us understand the point that Jesus is making. So what I mean is we're told that one of these men was a Pharisee and the other man was a tax collector. And there is an enormous amount of meaning in those two descriptions of these men. Now, in comparison, the Pharisee and the tax collector could not be any far apart, any more far apart, polar opposites. Right? So we're talking like socially, morally, politically, polar opposites. One was regarded with great respect in the community, a.k.a. the Pharisee. The other one was the lowest of the low, and we will get that to that a little bit later. Now, they do have one thing in common, is that they entered into the temple to pray, and that's where their similarity ends, right? From here, we see they have the same objective. However, they have a different approach and a result and so we're going to dig deeper and see that they have the same objective to pray to God, but they have a different way of going about it. And then also they get totally different results. And we're going to see where the Pharisee goes wrong and where the tax collector went right, which is astounding because it should be the opposite way. So first, we're going to just exposit this text. We're going to take it kind of verse by verse, and I'm going to add a little bit of commentary into that. So we're going to dissect the Pharisee first because... Uh, that's what Jesus does. He goes into them or into the Pharisee first. So as mentioned earlier, it's important to heed the titles of these two men. Now, what do we know about the Pharisees? Well, probably a lot, right? We know that the Pharisees are known in the community for their religious piety, right? They were respected and they were regarded as church leaders. Now, Oftentimes, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't become a Christian until I was about 18, 17, 18 years old. Um, but I grew up with a lot of people who did go to church, and I, I've heard this expression a lot. You know, it's like, well, did you grow up in church? And they say, man, my family, we were there when the doors opened every time, right? And they're talking about how often their family went to church, right? Wednesday, Sunday, so on and so forth. Well, 
The Pharisees weren't only there when the doors opened, they unlocked the doors, right? They were there for everything. That was their life. That was their identity to be religious. And not only did they, not only were they religious, right? We see that there's a little bit of problem with their righteousness. And they have what I call chip bag righteousness. All right, now you're not going to find that in systematic theology, Wayne Grudem, all right? But I've coined it as chip bag righteousness. And what I mean by that is this. If you ever go shopping for chips, all right, if you ever go shopping for chips or you see commercials about chips, I've noticed one thing in particular. They are not afraid to throw another brand of chip under the bus, right? And what I mean by that is this. I remember growing up, Pringles were on the rise, right? And their commercial literally consisted of them explaining why Lay's were so bad for you and so unhealthy. <clears throat> so you would have like these young people eating up Pringles like, yeah. And then it would go to a black and white screen and a guy eating Lay's potato chips is like, oh, you know, and he's like wiping his greasy hands. And then on the label, it said, you know, a better alternative for potato chips, right? So one did Pringles did a really good job of making us believe that they were better for us than Lay's potato chips. They were a healthy alternative. They were practically a vegetable, right? And if you just ate Pringles, then you would be fine. Now, the problem with that is this. If you go to the doctor and you tell the gentleman, I eat a can of Pringles a day, he's going to say, well, you need to stop because you will die, right? <laughs> and you may tell that man, the doctor, well, it's okay because I eat, I eat Pringles. I don't eat Lay's. And he's going to say, if you don't stop, you're going to die. Right? Because the fact of the matter is, although it may appear to have a bit healthier of an alternative for you, what's inside is still not good for you. Now, I'm not saying throw away all your chips at home. Right? I'm obviously a big fan of chips. But what I'm saying is this. Pringles or other chips, they work really hard to try to make us believe that they are better in comparison to other things. And they want us to think that they are the healthier and better alternative when in reality, what's inside is basically the same thing as the other. It'll still kill you, right? So all that to say, the Pharisees had that kind of righteousness. They wanted everybody to believe that they were great. They wanted everybody to believe that they were doing everything God had called them to do. But were they doing that with the heart? They were not. And one of the reasons why they were in opposition to Jesus the most was because Jesus was able to see past their, their image and get to the heart of how they truly were in response to God. And that made them angry because after all, as sinners, when we're exposed for who we are, we get really defensive about that. I mean, I'm a Christian and sometimes my wife will say like, well, Josh, you're doing this. I'm like, how dare you? When in reality, it's true. Right, and I have to go back and say, you're right. Ugh. You know, so ultimately when people expose us for who we are, we get defensive. And that's exactly why they hated Jesus. So in other words, they had little concern about God, but much concern about their egos. Now I say all of this to say that if anybody during this time period could pray well, who should it have been? The Pharisees. Because that was their job. Their job was to pray. And if anybody set an example of how to pray, who would that be? Or who should it be? The Pharisees, right? Because that was their job. Well, obviously, 
because of how Jesus uses negative connotation, we know that that's not true. But why is that not true? Why is that not true? Well, let's go ahead and read verses 10 through 12. It says this. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes and all that I get. So we're going to stop it right there. So notice the position of the Pharisee immediately when he goes into the temple. It says, particularly, my version says, the Pharisee, comma, standing by himself. Now, more than likely, this represented a place of being set apart. Now, let me remind you that Jesus had previously told us throughout the New Testament that unless we have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, then we will never see the kingdom of heaven. And he also used a couple examples of that, right? He said that when the Pharisees prayed, they prayed loudly, and they used many words, and it sounded beautiful. It was like poetry. But Jesus says they're not doing that because they actually want to see God move in their lives. They're doing it so they can be heard and be glorified for that, right? And another thing that it says that they did is when they walked into the synagogue, they often took the most important seats in the synagogue. Why? Because the most important seats in the synagogue emphasized an elevated status, right? Someone of importance. I mean, they had no concern for other people in the synagogue. They just wanted to be seen in the synagogue. So it's safe to say that when Jesus states that he was standing by himself, this was emphasizing the Pharisees' mentality that he was set apart, he was elevated. I don't need to stand over here with other people because I'm not like other people. He stood by himself in a place of pride, not humility. So next, we notice he was standing by himself. Next, notice how the rest of his prayer consists of all of the things that he is not right? All of the things that he is not in comparison to the tax collector, and we're going to discuss that in a bit, but also he is sure to remind God how righteous he is. So God, I thank you that I am not like this man over here. These men do X, Y, and Z. I don't do those things. Thank you for that. Which is that really a thanking? No, it's not. But not only that, he explains to God why I'm righteous. Well, God, I am righteous because I give my money, I give my time, I serve the church, I do this, I do that, and it all came from a place of pride. Is this how we pray? And I'm going to leave that a rhetorical question because I really don't want anybody to get this one wrong out loud, right? Is this the way that we are called to pray? Is this the attitude that we are to possess when we walk into the presence of God? Obviously not. So where did he go wrong? I'm a very practical man. I'm a huge fan of lists. Pros, cons, you name it, I love it. Right? I like to see what went right, see what went wrong, so I can maybe avoid making that same mistake. So since I'm practical, I broke down two major areas where the Pharisee went wrong in his prayer. And there's probably more than one. All of it was wrong. But there are two major areas where the Pharisee went wrong in his prayers. Number one, and this is very important, he seemed to forget, or even worse, maybe failed to ever truly believe his deep need for God's mercy and forgiveness of his sins. 
He failed to acknowledge that he was a sinner. And I'm even inclined to believe that he was convinced that he was not a sinner. If you pay attention to his prayer, we are inclined to believe that that man had absolutely no recognition that he needed to be saved, that he needed God's mercy. But see, a sinner like me, a sinner like you, when entering into God's presence, we're always conscious of the bold fact that God is holy and we are not. God is holy and we are not. Even believers who were justified in the blood of Christ know their status as sinners when standing before a holy God. Now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we have bold access to the throne of God through prayer, unhindered because of the work of Jesus. But that does not mean that we do not still feel the weight of our sin when standing in front of sheer perfection, right? The fact is, prayer, your prayer manifests itself, or your beliefs manifest itself in your prayer. Um, I'm a big fan of R.C. Sproul. And I don't know if R.C. Sproul actually said or quoted this originally, but he said this before. I've heard it a couple times. He says, you will know the theology of a person by how they pray. And what he's essentially saying is you will know what a person thinks about God, what a person thinks about himself, what a person thinks about other people by how they pray out loud. And the fact is, R.C. Sproul is right and it's confirmed here in this scripture. In this case, there was no mention of error in the Pharisee. There was no pleading for forgiveness in the Pharisee or no acknowledgement of shortcoming. And you have to ask yourself, was that because he didn't have any error? No. That can't be true because we know that all men, when standing before God, fall short. And let me tell you, this is a necessary part of a regular, healthy prayer life, the repentance of sin. That is a regular part of a healthy prayer life, is to recognize that I am a sinner, I need to repent of these sins, and I am forgiven, and acknowledge where I fall short. That is healthy. Now, the society we live in may tell you that it's not, because all you have to do is just believe you're good. All you have to do is just believe that you're doing good and everything's good, all is well. But we know that's not true. So when we talk about having a healthy prayer life and what it looks like to repent of sin and how that's a normal part of a prayer life, in fact, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray at one point. We know that, right? They come to this and say, Lord, teach us to pray as John the Baptist taught his disciples. And we know that Jesus gave them this outline, what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Now, in that model, we know it says, we we know systematically what it says, but there's a line in there that says, forgive us of our debts, right? So the first part of that structure is talking about how God is set apart. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as as is in heaven, right? So that whole section is devoted to God, you are holy, you are set apart, You are not like anything else in this earth. May your will, which is the best thing for mankind, come down from heaven to earth. May we be in line with your will. Not our will, but your will be done in our lives. And that's one section of it. So when we go into God, or go to God in prayer, we are always to start with this idea, or this this mindset that God is holy, and we are not. 
and that his will needs to be done in our lives, not ours. But then he goes into a little more practical side. Give us this day our daily bread, acknowledging that we have needs and asking God to meet these needs. Right. But then he says this. He says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And the fact that he says that in his model directs us to the fact that repentance of sin and sorrow for sin are normal cries of the Christian heart during prayer. Now, I'm not saying we're paralyzed by our sin. Now, I'm not saying that we go to God as Christians wondering if he will forgive us of our sin. Because we're taught in Scripture that if we ask for forgiveness, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of all of our sins, all unrighteousness. There's not a sin on this earth that we could ever commit, aside from blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But if you are a Christian, you cannot commit that sin, right? There's not a sin that a believer can commit that cannot be forgiven because of the power of Jesus Christ. And so we know that that is a normal state, a cry of the heart. And it's not uh, to be paralyzed, but it's to just know that we need God's help. We need God's mercy. And that actually glorifies God to be mindful of that. So back to the Pharisee, it was the lack of acknowledgement of sin that was a problem for the Pharisee, which proved to know that he may not have even known grace in the first place. So that was the first one. He forgot that he was a sinner and needed grace. The second one is just as bad. The next issue was that he seemed to have some sort of comfortableness with his holiness. In other words, he looked at his life, he saw the level of holiness in his life, and he became okay with that. He seemed to find comfort in his level of holiness. Now, a little theology 101, according to the book of Romans, is when you place faith in Jesus Christ, which is a gift given to you by God, you are immediately and ultimately justified before the Lord. And that cannot be taken away from you. So if you have truly have had faith in Jesus Christ, you were justified today, you will be justified tomorrow, you will be justified in a hundred years from now, right? So after this justification, there comes another point that we say in the church called sanctification. And most of us are familiar with that term. Now we know that sanctification is God's work in our lives to make us more like him, which is make us more holy, which make us more sinless right? Or less sinless, sorry. Wait a minute, no, more sinless, right? So ultimately, in sanctification, in sanctification, we know that God is committed to removing and purifying us from sinfulness. Now, we know that sanctification is a long, messy road. There are things in my life that God delivered me from, behaviors and inconsistencies in my life that God removed from my life quickly. And then there are other things that are more deep-rooted that I've wrestled with for a long time. And there's been progress there, right? But there are times where I still fall short. And we know that sanctification is not complete until we breathe our last on this earth. So we can actually take hope and take heart in the fact that we are not perfect on this earth. Right? Because in other words, it would be paralyzing, it would be backbreaking to know that we had to reach perfection. So sanctification is something that happens over time throughout the life of a believer in various ways according to God's will, however he sees fit in our lives. And we're to be moving forward in holiness. There's a verse 
that I've heard preached on before. And it says, you must be holy because your Father in heaven, or you must be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. And I've heard that preached before and I've heard people say, well, it doesn't necessarily mean perfect, right? We don't need to be perfect. We just need to be striving for perfection because we can't reach perfection. Well, <clears throat> I would argue that's not what that verse, the, the verse means what it says. Perfect means perfect. God requires but also expects us to be perfect, right? Now, luckily for us, that's a, a perfection is something that we don't have the possibility to reach on our own, and we don't have to be perfect to receive forgiveness, right? It's the very opposite of that. But that just tells us that the moving mark is perfection. The moving mark is holiness. Even though we fall short every day, and you will for the rest of your life, some of us, we will wrestle with sins, addictions, attitudes, behaviors. It may take years for us to get rid of those things. But the fact is God is changing your desires and making you want to turn away from those things. So it's not just a mere change in uh, behavior. It's a change in desire and what I desire as well. And we know that we're to be continuously growing in grace and be on guard against cooling off in our sanctification. And we see that that is where the Pharisee went wrong. The Pharisee was okay with his righteousness and we should never be okay with our righteousness because we're not perfect. And that's when it's okay for us to be okay with our righteousness is when we're perfect. But until that time, until we breathe our last, we are to be aware of the fact that we're not holy yet and we should almost grieve over that because perfection means holiness and holiness means sinlessness, which means we are more and more like God because sinlessness is God's best design for us and in this world, right? Again, it doesn't happen here, but it is a long process that we should be committed to and desire to grow in, and we should never cool off. And now I see that manifested in my life sometimes. If I've done well with leading my family in devotion, you know, we've done our abide reading, or in this case, our Advent study, you know, and I've prayed in the morning, and I've listened to a couple podcasts, you know, about nine o'clock at night, three days later comes, and it's like, man, I'm faced with a decision, you know, it's like, I know I need to be consistent with this thing. But you know what? I've done, I've done pretty good, right? I've read the last three nights in a row. I've prayed with my wife the last three nights in a row. I could take a break from that for one night, right? And that's exactly what that looks like, when in reality, we know that that's not God's desire for our lives, right? We are never to become comfortable with our level of holiness, but be striving to know him more and asking for him to do that work in our heart. So both the first, back to the Pharisee, both the first, the fact that he forgot that he needed to be forgiven, and the second, the fact that he was comfortable with his holiness, they're entwined. They intersect. And when they intersect, they produce a result. And that result looks two different ways as Jesus described. Remember the reason why he is telling this parable? It said, A, because there were people in his midst who thought that they were righteous in themselves and they were confident. But then what was the second thing? They held others in contempt, right? So with both of those things mixed, whenever you feel like you don't need forgiveness anymore, and we may not say that, but in our hearts, we, we're good. We're being obedient. And then when you start to cool off and you start thinking, I've got everything together, two things start to happen. You get puffed up with pride, you get puffed up with pride. You start to think, man, I'm really rocking this thing, right? 
And then the second thing starts to happen. You start showing contempt with other people. And what that looks like is you start looking at their worst, comparing it to your best, and then you have no compassion on them for their struggles. You only have anger. You have no patience for them. And you start to think if they would just get it right. And as believers, we don't have the luxury of holding other people in contempt because we know, we know that sanctification is a process that is done by God, right? Now, I'm not talking about condoning sin. I'm not saying that we are to play into those behaviors. But ultimately, what I'm saying is when we start to feel like we've got it all together and other people don't, we are starting to have a problem there. You know, there's a big way that I've seen this manifested recently in the last year. I'm going to try to, um, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to start any waves or anything, but ultimately we had a very brutal political season that we just came out of. Well, we're still in, right? And I noticed this pattern, you know, I'm 27 years old, so I'm not very old. This is the first election that I followed almost every single day. And I realized, man, politics can be a brutal game. It can be a brutal, hateful game. And where I've seen concern is the evangelical presence in politics. Now, what I'm not saying is that evangelicals should not be involved in politics. That's not what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, I think it's good to be involved. You know, one of my, my uh, biggest influences is Dr. Mueller. Every morning at 4 a.m., he puts out the briefing, which is... Basically, a political critique from a religious worldview, from, from a Christian worldview, right? So he offers politics, but he also gives you the Christian worldview to help us understand it from a biblical perspective. And I respect him so much for what he does. So I'm not saying that we should have an absence in politics. What I am saying is that if we're not careful, I've noticed a behavior. When somebody's on the opposing side, and oftentimes that opposing side stands for unbiblical principles, right? So when we start talking about the sanctity of life, when we start talking about biblical marriage and what that means for human beings, we can start to get into some unbiblical territory, right? We can start to see that people stand for some things that are in direct opposition to God's word. But one thing that I've noticed is sometimes we can get so angry at other people for not having the right beliefs that we forget that they need the gospel to change their heart, to get them to the right belief. And we don't, we're not concerned anymore about sharing the gospel with them. We're angry at them because they don't understand. We're angry at them because they don't think the way that we do. And what we do is we hold them in contempt. And I've got to be honest, I had to shut off my radio. I, I love talk radio. I listen to it. There's a lot of drive time in my job, so I'm constantly listening to talk radio. But there came a point where I just was an angry person. And I was like, you know what? My goal is that not that this person would come to the same belief system as me morally. My goal is to remember that they need the gospel because gospel transformation is what brings about the moral transformation. And when you start getting angry at people for not believing the things that you believe, you start to forget that they need grace. They need the gospel. And then you do exactly what this Pharisee was guilty of. You look at how you're right. You look at how they're wrong. And then it divides you and it doesn't tell you to pursue and to give them the gospel as well. I mean, it can happen in theology. It can happen a number of different ways. But that's one of the ways that I've seen it play out the most um, this season. 
Um, and so anyway, all that to say, I encourage us to do what the Pharisee did and pray and forget that we need forgiveness and be comfortable with our holiness and then be so filled with pride and self-righteousness that we have contempt for other people, right? Because Jesus ate with sinners, right? He didn't condone their sin. He was quick to tell them that they were in sin because it was the most loving thing to do. But it says the Pharisees regarded Jesus as basically, well, they held him in contempt because of his willingness to interact with that society, the people who didn't believe the right things. And we have to be careful that we're not headed down that same direction. So that's what the Pharisee did, okay? Let's talk about what the tax collector did. Because there's another gentleman who's involved in the story. And this is when it gets really good and really encouraging. We're going to go ahead and finish out the verse with the tax collector. He says this, But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So just like what we did with the Pharisee, let's exposit this gentleman, okay? So we know that we have a tax collector. And remember earlier what I said about the description that Jesus gives him is for the good of us understanding in depth what kind of person this guy was. So the Pharisee was known for his religious piety and was well-respected in the community. Well, the tax collector, the lowest of low. The tax collector was regarded as trash in the community. And we know historically the reason why is because they were Jews who went to work for the Roman government to collect money, which is already a sensitive subject. You start messing with people's money, it gets heated, right? Because it's people's hard-earned money. But not only that, not only did they collect the taxes, it shows that they were often very dishonest in how they did that, and they would keep some for themselves. So when the Pharisee talks about people being adulterers and um, extortioners, he was not far off. So he wasn't wrong in that way about the tax collector because the tax collector was not a good guy. And he was a traitor, and so he was looked on as the lowest of the low. What Jesus wants us to understand is that he was the vilest, the worst of sinners in there. And let's look at his position, just like the Pharisee. It says that the tax collector was standing far off. Now that's significant. Why is that significant? You know, I've heard people say, often an unbeliever, well, if I walked to the church, the thing would light on fire. Right? I don't know if you've ever heard that. If I walked through the doors, I think it would burst into flames. And what they're saying is, I'm so unrighteous, my life is so far away from God, that I couldn't even go into this place. And what we see is kind of the same situation. The tax collector, who knew he was vile, who knew that he was a sinner, who knew that he needed forgiveness, says that he was standing far off. And what this signified was he was too shameful to even come in. Whereas the Pharisee is going to bust open the doors and he's going to walk to the best spot in the house and he's going to stand and he's going to offer prayers and he's going to offer whatever he's going to offer in front of everybody. It says that this tax collector didn't even want to go into it. He was standing far off trying to exclude himself from other people because he had a realization that he was also not like other people. He was unholy. He had a problem. So it says that he was standing far off. And we get more detail. It says he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. What does it mean by that? Now, 
I don't own a dog. Thank the Lord. But I know one thing is when you get onto a dog for doing something wrong, what do they do? They hold their head in shame, right? You know, my daughter, every once in a while, there's a glimmer of hope that she feels shame for what she's done, right? So when I'm like, Noel, no, 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 don't do that. She's like, right? And then she normally does it. No, I'm just kidding. But ultimately, there is an article of shame that they feel. They know that they have done something wrong. And that's exactly what this man did. He was not only standing far off away from people because he felt um, that he was inferior to them because of his unholiness, but he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven because he knows, unlike the tax collector, God is holy and he is not. And he knows the proper response of sinfulness walking into holiness. He knows that I don't even deserve to be here, much less I dare not look God in the eye because the last thing that I deserve is mercy. But did that stop him? It says, he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, there's a cultural significance there. If um, a brother was beating his breast during worship, I would probably think we need to call an ambulance, right? But the Jewish people were very animated. Now, I... Um, in part Italian, you wouldn't know other than I just told you, and I don't tell people because sometimes whenever you find out that you're a certain ethnicity, you start to like think that you actually were from that place and you aren't at all. You have no like roots there at all. So I am part Italian. My great-grandfather migrated here. And the one thing that Italians are known for is what? How they talk with their hands, right? Well, the same thing happened here in the Jewish culture. They were very animated people. Their emotions, they wore them on their sleeves, Right? So when Jesus angered Pharisees, it says that they would rip their clothing, their articles of clothing, right? They would tear off their clothing. And that was the significance of, you messed up. Like, I'm so angry at you, I'm going to rip my shirt. Now, that will get you in jail here. But at that time, that was a normal custom. Jesus talked a lot about the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth representing just the deepest, darkest sense of despair. Like, oh, I, I'm so bitter. I'm so bitter. So they were very animated people. So when this gentleman was beating his breast, he was feeling the weight and the sorrow of his sin. It's one thing to know that you're a sinner. And you don't have to be a believer to know that. All you have to do is look at humanity to see that something is wrong with us. You do not have to be a believer Or you may even believe in God, but you don't have to be a Christian, a real authentic Christian, to know that you are a sinner. You know, I I used to do a tremendous amount of evangelism on the uh, campus of the high school. And one of the questions that I asked these students was, if you died right now, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? And I can't tell you how many times the answer was hell. Well, why do you think you would go to hell? Because I'm a bad person. I do wrong things. So there's this obvious universal understanding that we do incorrect things. So it's one thing to know that you are a sinner, but it's another thing to feel that you are a sinner. It's one thing for God to give you the gift of repentance, to feel the weight that you have committed capital sins against a holy God. Those are two separate things. You can know you're a sinner, but can you feel that you are a sinner? And not only... Can you feel that you're a sinner? Are you able to do what this tax collector did, which was go to God in confession? See, this man said very little, and the Pharisee said a lot. But we see the difference here. The little ended up being the right things to say, 
And the Pharisee who said a lot ended up being incorrect entirely. So not only did he feel the weight of his sin, he knew the only way I'm getting out of this is to go to God and plea and beg for mercy. If you're a Christian in this room today, you have felt the weight of that. You have felt the weight of that. You don't just know that you're a sinner. You know that there's business that needs to be handled between you and God. And there comes a point in your bones where the Holy Spirit convicts you so heavily that you have no choice but to be like this man and cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because there's no amount of religious piety that could cover that guilt. You may be able to mask it. You may be able to do good things. I was just having a conversation with my wife's friend last night who's very intellectual, very smart, doesn't necessarily know what she believes, but to her, being a good person is good enough. Being a good person is good enough. But the problem with that is when we define what is good, it's gonna look different for everybody. And we know that everybody has a different definition of good, but in reality, is your good good enough to pay your sin debt? The tax collector knew that it wasn't. The Pharisee didn't. God, I thank you I'm not like this man. I thank you that I do this and I do that. This is why I'm righteous. But this man, the vilest of vile, came into God's presence, didn't want to look at God, beat his breast, expressed a deep sorrow for his sin, and then he did the part that is next in the process. He confessed his sin. What was the result of that? Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So not only did this man go to his house justified, the other man did not. So we don't know entirely whether parables were stories that were told, an image, right? They may or may not have necessarily existed. They may have, right? So Jesus may have been telling this story of two separate people to make a point. But in the event that this one really did happen, in the event that it really did, one of them, the non-religious man, went to heaven when he died, and then the other one who was so sure that he would go to heaven had a Matthew situation where Jesus says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're gonna come to me on that great day and they're gonna say, didn't I do these things in your name? Didn't I feed the poor, right? Didn't I give my money? Didn't I give my time? And he's gonna say, be gone, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And guys, my, my, I'm not doing a scare tactic here. I'm trying to get us to understand that that is not necessary. This man, the tax collector, who had nothing to offer God, walked away justified that day. And the man who thought he had everything to offer to God did not. And then he goes on to say this, and it's a very humbling verse. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Essentially what he's saying is if we have this elevated status in our mind that we have something to offer God and you are exalted in that, you feel good about that, well, there's gonna come a time where you will be humbled. But then he says, those who are humble, those who know their lowly state before God, there's gonna be a time where they're gonna be elevated. 
And that's really difficult for us because we live in a society that we want everybody to be great because this is a great country. And we, we think everybody should be the best at what they do. So it's kind of offensive to tell people, especially people who are really good, now I'm not in that category, people who are really good to tell them that there will be a time where you will be humbled, right? And what Jesus is telling us this morning is that God's grace and his mercy is the only thing that saves. It's not what we do. It's not how we do it. It's not how often we do it. God's mercy alone can save. And he wants us to understand that naturally, we are a people who want to justify ourselves. We are a people who have this need to feel like I have contributed to the salvation that is not, God, or not my salvation, it's God's salvation. In other words, this is wonderful news for all of us this morning. Unless you're a Pharisee, then it's bad news. If your intention in your heart is to reach God because of how good you are and hold others in contempt, with contempt, that's bad news for you. But it doesn't have to be that way. If you're like me, you recognize how short, or how short you fall. If you're like me, you know that there's absolutely nothing that I can do to free me from my sinful state. And what Jesus is telling us this morning is you don't have to. He does that. He does that for us, right? So you bring nothing to the table, but he gives you everything. And how good of a God do we serve that we're not reading this morning how you need to shape up and fly right? How good of a God do we serve that I'm not standing up here telling you, well, you've done this, you need to do this. You've done this, you need to do this. You've done this, you need to do this. I've done this, I need to do this. But instead, we serve a God that in his holy scripture, he wanted us to know, confess your sins to me and I will forgive you. That's great news. Like I said, I've, I've found this comforting many times because I, I, I will be honest with you. I have, I have leaned more towards the Pharisee after I've become a Christian. Right? I didn't start off that way. Before I was a Christian, I believed that there was probably some sort of God and I felt that there was something wrong with me. Romans 7, Paul says, the very good that I want to do, I find myself fleeing from that. I want to do it, but I can't. My heart won't let me. The very bad that I so desperately want to stay away from, I find myself running to that. What a wretched man am I? Who will save me from this body of death? Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Now, I, re I, I, re I totally identified with that. But after I became a Christian and I started to be right in the sense, I struggled more with leaning towards the Pharisee and holding other people like, what? I mean, are you serious? You can't, you can't get that right? 
Let me tell you, if you're married, that's a wonderful representation of how bad it can be. Because all of us bring these expectations into marriage. And there's been times where my wife has had to say, like, I love you, but it's like you're adding a burden to my back. You know what I should be doing, and you're quick to tell me that, but you're a little bit slower in helping me get there and encouraging me, right? So I've wrestled with the Pharisee more so after being a Christian than um, before, whenever I wasn't. All that to say this, I think that God wants us to understand that God alone can rescue us from that state. And he will. And, and, and let me also remind you this. The only people who are not forgiven are those who don't seek that. The only people who are not forgiven are those who did not come to them. So when they stand before God in judgment, they will stand before God for judgment of their sins. But it's not their sins that has gotten them into hell. It has because they're sinners, but it also hasn't. I think God is gonna say, well, yeah, your sins did get you here, but what about the mercy that you passed up? So you're not going to hell simply because your sins, because there's sinners in heaven right now, right? And they're not sinning anymore, but they're sinners in heaven right now. So it's not the fact that you sin, it's the fact that you've rejected mercy and forgiveness. So if you're a believer this morning as I wrap up, I just want to encourage you and myself. May we never forget our stance before God, even though we are justified. May we never forget that we are still sinners, still in need of grace. We are far from perfection. And may we never hold other people to a crushing weight and crushing burden because they can't reach it. And again, it doesn't mean that we aren't, aren't to lovingly instruct people out of sin. It doesn't mean that we aren't supposed to confront other people about sin. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to condone sin. But what it means is we have to be willing to have compassion because we are a people who God has compassion on for their sins. If you're an unbeliever this morning, or maybe you've gone to church Maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe, you know, you've recently started attending. Believing in God is not enough because the Pharisee believed in God. And James convicts us by saying even the demons believe in God and they shudder. So if you're an unbeliever this morning, I, I challenge you to place your faith in the Savior that has already done everything that is needed to get you into heaven. And you're free to stop wrestling. You're free to stop going, well, something's wrong in me. So how can I fix that? Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. So maybe you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart this morning to come. Well, I challenge you to do so, knowing that this tax collector, this man who was just the worst of men, despised in the community, walked away from God's temple justified because he placed faith in God and not himself. Let's pray. Father, 
we come before you knowing that every day we are guilty of a capital defense against you. We know that every day there's a capital defense in our lives and we know that we deserve punishment for how we have offended you and how we've offended other people that are made in your image. But Father, we are thankful that we have a Bible that reminds us that there is great mercy for those who are sinners. I pray that you would help us rest in that. Father, I pray that we wouldn't be okay with our level of holiness, that we would, we would thirst to be more like you. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the desire and the ability to carry that out. I pray that you would remind us that when we fall short, there is forgiveness there. God, I pray that you would help us in our interactions with believers and other people who may not be believers and that we would not um, put a crushing weight on their shoulders, but ultimately we would offer hope to them in loving instruction, never forgetting where we stand. Father, I also pray for those who have not yet believed in your name. They may um, know that God exists. They may, they may believe that he doesn't. But I pray that you would convict their hearts and that you would remind them that you are there and that you love us and that you have done everything we needed to come to know you. And it's in Christ's name we pray.